Welcome once again to the Ace Podcast with me, Pete Perfides. I'm delighted to have with me a writer who, since the publication of his pioneering punk history, England's Dreaming, has created a unique place for himself as a peerless assimilator of musical and social history. Uh, other titles bearing his name include The Faber Book of Pop, which he edited with Hanif Qureshi, Teenage, The Prehistory of Youth Culture, and a book of interviews undertaken for England's Dreaming, The England's Dreaming Tapes. His enthusiasm for the music he writes about is abundant to anyone who's read his work or heard him speak or indeed listened to the many fantastic compilations he's put together over, over the years. Among them, Queer Noises, 1961 to 1978, Fame, which was a secret history of post-punk, 78 to 81. Uh, he was also responsible for compiling a secret history of second-wave psychedelia, 1988 to 1993, Intense Tamla, Meridian 70, and Black Hole Californian post-punk, 1977 to 1980. Uh, I mentioned his enthusiasm, and some writers use enthusiasm to fill the void where research and corroboration might have actually served them better. However, that's not the way of this gentleman. One of the absolute joys of his most recent book, 1966, a month-by-month examination of what happened to music in that very year, was the astute referencing of contemporaneous sources from California beat boom journal KRLA Beat to 1966 Boyfriend Book. Better still, you could read it all while listening to the Ace compilation that he put together as a sonic compliment to the book. Now he's set his sights on the following year, which in many ways was a radically different proposition to the preceding 12 months. The new compilation he's put together for Ace is called 1967, The Year Pop Divided. We'll come on to that, well, in a matter of seconds, I suspect. But right now, let's extend a warm welcome to Mr John Savage. Hello, Hello, Peter. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, except the roads are all up round here. Uh, so you, so you, you, you're, you look placid on the face of it, but I suspect that mentally you're paddling furiously. No, it's OK. It's just uh, I don't live in London anymore, so getting involved in London traffic jams is uh, <laughs> a bit stressful. So you're, <laughs> you're, in, you're in Anglesey? I live in Anglesey, yeah. And how long have you been there? Um, uh, Full time, 19 years. Right, OK. And what precipitated that? Um, space, uh, space, really. And also being able to sell... Sorry, property alert here. Being able to sell a noisy two-bedroom flat and get a really nice place to live in, in North Wales, right by the sea. And would, I'm guessing that maybe part of the reason why you needed more space is because you keep all this archive of pop culture material um, is that right yes pete well i regard my archives as a bad idea which is hoarding pushed through through my mania into a good idea which means that all the hoarding turns into an archive which means that i can sell it and which i do you do uh, yeah oh, okay when do you um, when do you must that must mean that there are times when you you sell you regret having sold certain things no, because it's part of it's part of the um, you know I've got for instance we've got I've got a record mirror in front of me here which I love it's a it's a it's a pop paper I love it's got Tony Hall and great singles reviews and I've got a whole run of them between sixty five and sixty eight every single one and when the time comes to sell them which I hope is very soon I won't regret it for an instant because the shutter goes down once the decision is made that's it. Drop me a line when you start to think about <laughs> selling it, John. I think I might be interested. <laughs> um, so, um, you've 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 put together this compilation of 1967 music. Does this mean you've started working on a book about 1967? No, it's in a way it's in, it's in lieu. Um, obviously, um, I've actually just been taking a break. Um, I've been working non-stop for about 30 years on various books and various films. And I'm certainly not doing a book about 1967, which is a shame. But, number one, I don't like repeating myself. So it would have been a bit obvious to do 67 for me after 66. So the next book, big book I do will be something completely different. Um, and um, I didn't want to start another big book soon, so soon after the last one. Um, and when I mean a big book, I mean a big book. Um, I'm probably, I think the original... I think I wrote nearly 300,000 words on 1966 and then I had to cut it down by a third. So um, it's a lot of work and um, I'm taking a break from that at the minute. So the answer, the, the quick answer is no. <laughs> 
I mean, I f- you say you you know you don't like me repeating yourself, but in a way, uh, one one thing that strikes me about 1967, the year in music, I think it is a very different year to 1966. Do you, do you agree with that? Or uh, yeah, the big difference is 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 in black music, you you're starting to move out of soul into funk. And in white white pop and, and the start of rock music, you have psychedelia, um, which you don't have so overtly in 66. You have the start of psychedelia in 66. And in 67, LSD is a big thing. Um, and, I mean, there are several tracks on the comp that actually either enshrine LSD as a great thing to do, like Levitation by the 13th Floor Elevators, who recorded on LSD, or um, records that think that maybe it wasn't such a good idea, like Believe It or Not by Rex Garvin and the Mighty Cravers, or even uh, The Shag and Stop and Listen, which yeah, is yeah. a wonderful song, which is all about... A guy, all you know, the singer, you know, all his friends are telling him it's really great to take LSD, and he's thinking mm, maybe I'll leave it. <laughs> I guess it's one way to sort of, you know, to address the zeitgeist without necessarily, um, uh, you know, uh, hurling yourself into a risky situation. I'm glad you mentioned both those records, and I'd like to focus momentarily on Rex Garvin and the Mighty Cravers. He. Rex Garvin strikes me as a kind, kind of an opportunist character because he also did Socket to Him JB, which was the JB in question in this case was James Bond. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd think it's James Brown, but in fact, the track you get them yelling out "Casino Royal" and all this kind of stuff in the middle of it. And um, on the B side, in fact, it was on the previous comp. It was on the '66 comp, and the B, the flip um, side, part two is basically a dub track. It's, they've stripped out all the instruments and just leave the rhythm, which is sort of incredible. Mm. And this, I don't actually know much about him, um, but uh, this one is just so great because it's uh, it's sort of vaguely, vaguely trippy, the, the music, but I think it begins with a gong. But, you know, he's saying, don't take it, it's really a bad idea. You're going to see vampires. Did you? I, I saw a quote... Um a while ago, actually, because I it was I was digging around uh, when when I played Socket to JB on my radio show for Soho Radio, I wanted to find out a bit about him and in, and there was he was asked about um, sorry oh yeah he was asked about believe it or not and he said uh, that was just the craze in the early sixties so I wrote a song about it I never tried it I never wanted to try it you see a lot of people when you're on tour want you to try things I was scared to try it I remember a guy who told me he tried that shit and woke up in a gigantic vagina I didn't want to feel that shit (laughs) yeah well okay some people do have psychosexual problems Pete Um, (laughs) but well you know um, and um, LSD, well, you know, it's very, very strong stuff. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't recommend that anybody took it. Um, and also, LSD was very much seen as a white person's thing until really maybe even 68, 69, when you started to get proper psychedelic soul and funk. You know, that didn't happen for a bit. And initially, uh, I got a copy of Sepia magazine from the end of 66, where LSD is a nightmare drug and white people take it, don't you take it? So it was very much a white thing initially. Why do you think that is? Do you think there's a, there's a kind of decadence involved in wanting to sort of escape your middle-class comfortable existence, or is it just quite purely just the way it entered culture? I think it's the way it entered culture. I think that um, whatever one would like to think, and there was a lot of musical crossover at the time, the two worlds were very, very separate and becoming increasingly more separate. In fact, of course, 1967 is the year of riots and Newark, and um, it's the, it's the, the Black Panthers are really getting going. So it's the start of that division, um, increased division, really, between the races, which really, unfortunately, which really... Um, kicks off in 68 with the assassination of Martin Luther King. And so people say like Stax Records, which is an integrated oasis in the middle of segregation, um, even that starts to divide and get segregated and separated in 68. So you start to have... And there is this moment in the mid-60s when... Bob Dylan is influencing um, Holland Dozier Holland and Solomon Burke is covering... um, is covering um, um, Maggie's Farm and Otis Redding is covering uh, 
you know, uh, Day Tripper and Aretha's covering Satisfaction. So you do get this crossover, um, but that doesn't seem to last for very long. And, you know, you'd get the idea of black power and say it out loud, I'm black and I'm proud in 68. So this is kind of the last year when it really happens. And you do have, of course, a wonderful psychedelic record with reflections by Diana Ross and the Supremes. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you not think that I felt like I felt like maybe and uh, you know defer to you because your knowledge is quite vastly greater than mine. I felt like that that traffic traffic between soul and rock sort of continued into the early seventies a little bit when you had um, you know that, that sort of you know the Edwin Starr and um, things like You Need Love Like I Do, yes, like this night. And that it seemed to fall away quite sharply after that. Yeah, I felt like it, it it was kind of hovering for a while. Well, of course, and also as you get into the 70s, it's a golden age of black American music, um, and it's not a golden age for rock music, although some people are trying to reclaim it. Let me tell you, I was 18 in 1971, and if you wanted to rock, it wasn't <laughs> happening. Um, that's why everybody goes on about the Flaming Groovies and the MC5, not because they're super brilliant, although I love them bit to bits. It's just they, they rocked and nobody else was rocking. Yeah. There and I, you know, I, mean, I really do like rock music to be fast. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it just it just fell apart, didn't it? I mean, there was just this moment in, and and actually, though, you kind of another one of your compilations, Meridian Seventy, kind of captures that time of uncertainty very well. When yes, well, I mean, the idea of that was, of course, you know, whatever we say now, me and my friends were listening to. I don't know, the latest Dreadful Birds album in 1971 or 1970. And we were listening to all the solo albums by 60s psychedelic groups. Um, and there was always one really good track on the album. I mean, they were notorious, those records. They had one or two great tracks and the rest was just filler or garbage. And so the idea was just to fill it, those great tracks, and put them on one compilation. And it's a lot of fun. I do like music from that period, but, you know, it's... it's um, it's my real love is for rock music to be loud and fast. You and I know and I know a lot of people are reclaiming that period and it's great. Bob Stanley's just done a really good compilation on it. And I respect it and I enjoy listening to it, but it wasn't where my heart lay at yeah. the time. And you really do as you said, you really do have to seek out those tracks because they're not they're not abundant on on albums they they just happen occasionally you mentioned the birds earlier on and one thing i i i love about this compilation the 1967 it's a thing that actually i i rather like to do when i'm compiling uh, putting together compilations for people is to put stuff that people know as well as stuff that people don't yes. know because i don't want it to be a bit too much like having to eat your greens you know well and also there's a lot of compilations which has alternate takes and stuff and although I think it's interesting it's not necessarily something you want to play all the way through um, and this was very much the idea of this is very much an enhanced simulation of me listening to Radio Caroline South in 1967 yeah. so there's a lot of records that I actually heard on the radio at that time because I was 13 and I made lists, as one does. <laughs> and um, then there's other stuff like, um, you know, 34 Elevators or um, The Third Bardo or um, maybe one of the, you know, So Sharp that I wouldn't have heard them but I really like and I put in anyway. Um, but a lot of these tracks, like at the third, particularly more, more, more obscure ones, like Piccadilly Line at the third stroke, Lazy Life by William E., The Idol by The Fortunes, a lot of the kind of I wanted to put mainstreamish pop on there. Not that they were successful, but they were sort of mainstream-ish pop records that were made in the style of the time. And what I like about the style of the time, of course, is that it was psychedelic and it was free and easy. And so you get a lot of strings and you get harpsichords and you get a free and easy feel and you get a bit of weird sound effects and all that sort of stuff on top of a basic pop record. So it's great. This is kind of where pop and rock were starting to separate in earnest, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I, I, just going back to I really, really like all the psychedelic stuff. I love backwards tapes. I love sitars. I love strings. I love exotic instrumentation. And it's one thing I've always hated about the band is that they came along the next year and say, we aim to get rid of all that psychedelic shit. Well, actually, I really like all that psychedelic. Mm. Um, and I think the band are really dreary. 
Um, so you can shut up. Um, <laughs> um, oh, God, that first album. I know I do like bits of the band later on, but they start with Tears of Rage and it goes on forever and you just want to die. The, the band, it's, it's amazing, though, isn't it? Because the, ba- the, like, the band almost remind me of what's happening these days with austerity. It's just this kind of very self-conscious, almost self-punishing, pairing back of our embarrassing... Uh, daydreaming excesses yes. of, of, of before. Yes. It's, and dr- it's boring. And also they have beards. They have beards. Beards and pop music do not mix. Not if somebody's got beards, they don't make great pop music, except for the Beatles in early 67. Okay. <laughs> you're go- you're go- test this one. Road you're, test this one You're going one far out. too quickly for me to verify or refute road this. Te- road test that one out, Peter. <laughs> so for ABBA, and I, of course I don't really like ABBA, so there you are. Don't you? Cool. They were the enemy, Peter, back in 1977. I was a punk rocker. I didn't like ABBA. I thought do they were st- awful. Do you, do you feel that you have to exercise indefinitely exercise fidelity to... No, but it does influence thinking. I mean, I do actually, I do actually like Dancing Queen. Um, and I do actually like... What's the other one I like of theirs? The Visitors, which is kind of great. Hmm. But, you know, the lingering... Of course the lingering prejudices remain. Um, and that's fun because in the end all you're doing is blathering about pop music and people can agree or disagree and you can have a nice argument about it and I love arguing about pop music it doesn't mean I'm right Um, but you know I love it all and I you know I'm very amused I always love it when people try I've had people try and say to me well look John you know I think you're being a bit snobby about Enkelbert Humperdinck Engelbert Humperdinck, it made, that record made me want to die when I heard it in 1967. Do you think I'm going to be nice about it now? Please release me. I don't think any... Has anyone tried to reassess release me? I'd well, be surprised I think, if they have. I, I, think, I, think, I think they'd like to try. And I'm not having it for an instant. <laughs> but no, of course I don't. And actually, it's quite interesting to... Examine your prejudices. I do that by watching the Top of the Pops 1970s. And I watched... It was interesting. I watched the 1976 ones. And there were the four records that drove me screaming into the arms of punk, which were Fernando by ABBA, which is my anti-ABBA thing. Hmm. Um, And uh, Save Your Kisses for Me, obviously, by Brotherhood of Man. Um, I've got a brand new Combine Harvester by Edge Cutler and... Elton and Kiki, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. And I just hated those records with a rare passion. Well, that's symptomatic of, obviously, how old you were, where you were at at that point in your life. But also, pop music wasn't doing what pop music ideally should have done. And a lot of what happened in punk is a lot of people were very, very... They'd been to the 60s, they'd expected a vital and fascinating pop culture, and they got Ad Cutler. Mm. So everybody was a bit fed Adge up and disappointed. Edge Cutler was... I mean, even at six, I don't think I like the Wurzels, but um, Edge Cutler's got the worst... It's the argument at its worst, isn't it? Whereas... There was a know, sense. If, 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 if you look at Top of the Pops in 1976, there's a lot of drag and there's a lot of patronising DJs. Um, and everybody says about punk, oh, it's prog rock. And whether anybody's right or wrong, this is how people felt at the time. A lot of prog rock. It wasn't prog rock. That was over. The truest pop, the truest punk lyric is Buzzcock, 16. Um, and I hate modern mis- music, disco boogie and pop. It goes on and on and on and on. I wish it would stop. And that's how I certainly felt. Because pop music wasn't doing its job of being exciting. A lot of people liked both, didn't they? Well, disco especially. I mean, a, a lot of young people liked punk and disco, didn't they? Yeah, but I was hardcore at that point. Yeah. To my to my detriment, I have to say. Um, but the record that turned it round for me was I Feel Love, which is and Magic Fly by Space. Yeah. Because suddenly you had the idea, along with Bowie, that you could have really in- interesting electronic music. And that was a huge change for me. And then much later, about 20 years later, uh, I became one of my very good friends in New York, a man called Vince Aletti, who was the first person to ever coin the phrase disco, write about disco. And he said, right, John. And he sat me down with a little bit of stimulants and sat me down and gave me a disco education. And I loved it. So... Wow. Okay, I'd like to pursue that road, but I think I need <laughs> I need to gently pull the invisible cord back to 1967. But, but but I do think on that you do it's it's an interesting thing getting older because you do remember very keenly how you felt as a teenager, 
And difference when you're a teenager is as important as being part of the group. Certainly mm. was for me. I wanted to be different from the group. I didn't want to be like everybody else, like the kink sang. Um, and then, of course, as you get older, you realise it's sort of ludicrous. But there are certain things that I like to hold on to. For instance, I used to really hate the jam. I don't now. I actually respect them. Um, I re-examined my prejudice. Um, why, why did you hate them at the time? Because they were they were retro, and I wanted new. Mm. And I saw them in early 77 and they were doing heat wave in crappy Burton's two-turn shoes. Now, I listened to Down the Tube Station at midnight and I thought, that is a real tune. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And and, and an A-bomb in Wardour Street, two great records. So a total respect there. And one of the two or three greatest lyricists of his generation. I well, not hard when you've got Marquis Smith. I don't even know how to begin to critically play a praise for Marky Smith. <laughs> I, I like being contentious, Peter. It's fun. It's pop music, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, you know, it. But you have to. I think. I think you're right about honouring the truth as you saw it at that point in time. And ninety. Before we go back to 1967, flip those two numbers around. Uh, 1976, I remember, and 77, I remember watching Top of the Pops. And, you know, when you have a thought in your head that you're too young to articulate it at the time. But what I was looking out for, really, subconsciously, was um, sort of pop stars who, if my parents suddenly died, yes. what, could they, what, what kind of a job would they do at, uh, at looking after me? So, um, so Brotherhood of Man, obviously, and ABBA, I thought, you know, those, the, and Kiki D, I thought they'd be good sort of substitute parents. So that was kind of the the bedrock of my aesthetic at the time, and so I will always honour that. Yeah, that, that kind. Of, yeah, but I, I'm I'm sorry, I hate those records. No. But that that's the difference, and that is a generational difference. Um, and in twenty when I nineteen seventy six, I was incredibly, I was very angry, and very frustrated. And also, I was a young gay man, and being gay then was absolutely dreadful thing to be. How old were you in nineteen sixty seven? I was thirteen, turning fourteen. And did you know you were gay at that point? Not overtly, no. I think shortly afterwards. Okay. I was thinking about. Funnily enough, I was thinking about this yesterday, and I think maybe even that year the realization hit. Um, and of course, it was a problem. Even though, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work on the 50th anniversary of the SOA, 67 Sexual Offences Act, when homosexuality is partly decriminalised. And everybody thinks, wow, suddenly you had gay discos and everything. It was absolutely fabulous. It wasn't. It was still guilt-ridden and kind of depressing way into the 80s. What, um, what were the records that... I, I, I feel like the records that we really get obsessed with in our lives are sort of records that, even though we might not know it at the time, are kind of explaining our lives to us. Either, either yes. I mean, I think it's very interesting. I, I love going back, for instance, doing the 66 book... Um, I love going back to, you know, because I love those records and you don't quite know when you like, why you like them. And uh, then it's interesting to put them in context of time and place. And what I got from 66, and in fact what I get from a lot of pop culture that period, it's about freedom. And that's certainly what I wanted. I wanted freedom from my parents' expectations. I wanted freedom from, you know, the stupid prejudice against gay people. I wanted freedom to do what I want, which doesn't mean total licence, it means self-discipline as uh, autonomy does um, and that's what I wanted and I heard freedom in those records so and and going back to these um, I mean the records that I really liked at the time mm. I liked a lot of the kind of mainstreamish want to be mainstreamish pop so I really did like um, well uh, take me in your arms and love me was a huge hit it was it was a big hit mm. but I really loved I can hear the grass grow which is one of the obvious ones and show me and grooving and um, Hand Don't Fit the Glove by Terry Reid and uh, and Alternate Title and The Piccadilly Line. So, you know, about half of these I actually re You Keep Running Away by the Four Tops. I actually loved at the time. Terry Reid was a voice you could really get excited about, I imagine, just sort of immediately. I don't know why I liked that record. I just did. Um, there was a kind of drama to it and I think he ad-libs very well at the end. It's a, it's a, it's a, that was a big... Favourite of mine, as was the Piccadilly line at the third stroke, so it's kind of moody and spooky. It's got that, I mean, it's such a brilliant idea for a song, and that sort of psychedelicisation of the mundane every day, 
always works, doesn't it? Well, it's Sergeant Pepper, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah that was a big and Blossom Toes Look at Me I'm You is about going to work in the morning and being completely miserable yeah yeah. (laughs) it's interesting that one thing that really sort of took flight in 1967 is something that I think you I think you kind of identify towards the end of 1966 the book um, where you sort of talk about the the sort of proliferation of of vintage clothes and um, this kind of looking back to kind of, you know, Victoriana and old military kind of aesthetic. And and it sort of, um, and it really took sort of full flight in a lot of records that came out in 1967. Well, one of the most popular records in late 66 was Winchester Cathedral. Um, And I went back and I was all prepared to hate it. And actually, I thought it was a well-made record. And this, again, goes back to what m- my prejudice is. You know, I thought that I really hated distant drums. At the time, I hated distant drums, and I hated uh, um, Green Green Grass of Home, and I listened to both of them carefully. And while I wouldn't particularly want to listen to them very often, I thought they were very well-made records, and I can see why they were successful. Um, and maybe if I was writing another history of 76, 77, maybe I'd look, I don't think I would look at... Brotherhood of Man, I think that's just too too far. But uh, I could probably look at Fernando and have it not annoy me, which it did intensely at the time. I don't know why. Um, it's probably that stage in my life. Um, but anyway, yes. Um, I think... Uh, oh, I don't know. I think it's... Um, there's not an enormous amount of retro here. I mean, obviously, that the whole Winchester Cathedral... Um, I was Lord Kitchener's valet stuff kind of fed into Sergeant Pepper, which was the big event of the year. And obviously I couldn't get any Beatles records for this. You can't no. get Beatles or Stones, can you, Neil? Can you get the Bee Gees? Um, was, was the, Bee Gees the Bee Gees was another good example. Um, I wouldn't have wanted... I think 1940, uh, 1941 might have been... Um, not 1941. New York mining disaster might have been on early... Uh, I do like the Bee Gees, on an early version of this. Um, But let me see, are there any kind of super retro things? No, I think it's starting to to play itself out, really, in 67. Let me pick up on something you said earlier on about the sort of being able to see the good in something like the green, green grass of home or whatever. And, you know, in the... I mean, understanding something is a real... When you start to understand something, it really it's a real impediment to sort of anger or sort of to, to intolerance, isn't it? Yeah, but I like a bit of anger and intolerance when that's, talking about music. That's, well, that's what problem. I mean. I mean, that's the problem. You've got to balance it. I mean, to me, uh, that was work. It was work because I'm writing about the year and I have to make sense of the record, whether I like it or not. I don't have to make sense about these records because I'm just doing a compilation. So let me read you this chart, which was the exact chart probably that made me want to slash my wrists in early in April 1967 from the record mirror. Maybe not as maybe not as um, dramatic as that, but there's nothing like being 13 and bored, stupid. Um, so number one, something stupid by Frank and Nancy. No thanks. Number two, release me by Engelbert. No thanks. Number three, Puppet on a Spring Sandy Shot. Ugh. Uh, number four, Little Bit Me, Little Bit You, Not Too Bad, Not Their Best by the Monkees. This is my song by Harry Seacombe. No way. Ha Ha Said the Clown. Yes, great pop record. Simon Smith. Okay. I Was Kaiser Beale's Batman. No thanks. It's All Over by Cliff. No thanks. And Edelweiss by Bince Hill. Not a great chart. No. Um, compared to the previous year. And, of course, what happens is that there's a brief hiatus in British pop music. You start to have the division between, which you didn't have in, in the high 60s, between Mums and Dads records, mainstream pop, and the nascent underground. Um, and part of the problem is the pirate radio stations, which are beginning to disappear, and the pirate radio stations informed, if you like, the holistic nature of mid-60s British pop culture, because you'd hear all these records jumbled together. Um, and then at this stage, you didn't have Radio 1 yet. A lot of the pirates were going down. Um, there was still Radio London, still Radio Caroline South, but, um, but some of them were already being shut down at the end of '66. Um, and also you have the gigantic hole left in British pop culture by the disappearance of the Beatles until, in fact, March, or February, in fact, when they released Penny Lane. 
And mums and dads had always bought records, obviously, because in, even in the high 60s you had The Bachelors and Ken Dodd Tears. And, um, you know, um, I mean, again, you know, people say, well, come on, John, you know, they were, they were good records. And I'm saying, no, I'm not having it. Um, because at the time, until the Pirates, till I, for me, till I started hearing the Pirates, the only pop input I got was on um, BBC Light Programme or Top of the Pops, already said to go. And I was avid watcher, already said to go in Top of the Pops. And um, so you had to get through three dreadful records to get to the record you liked. And so the record you liked, you know, you had to sit through the Seekers and, I don't know, whoever, Ken Dodd, before you got to the Yardbirds. And I wanted the Yardbirds. I didn't want the Seekers. Oh, was this the stuff that your parents liked? No, they didn't particularly like it at all. What, what you did you? Did we? Were they just not interested? They weren't. They were basically uninterested in pop in music at all. Uh, my father liked a bit of light orchestral. He liked Mantovani and Bert Camford, um, and they indulged me in my love of the Beatles, but they did not indulge me in my love of the Stones. Uh, was it a worry to them? No, it wasn't a worry to them until a bit later when I started misbehaving. Okay. I mean, I was a good boy at this stage. You when, know, what, I, I got a scholarship and all that stuff. So. When did you start? What, what, what man, how did your misbehaviour manifest itself? Um, long hair and drugs. And then when I went to university, it was long hair, drugs, radical politics, homosexuality. I was trying to tick all the boxes, basically. <laughs> quite sort of de defiantly. Methodically. <laughs> did this all happen in quite a short space of time? No, because I started taking drugs when I was 18. Hmm. Um... But, yeah, I didn't want that middle-class life. And, you know, I, I now understand my parents' middle-class life, which was very much to do with coming, living through the war. Yeah. My mother was too young to fight, obviously, but she, the, war, the experience of the war was terrible. And so the idea was to settle down, everything's going to be peaceful and nice, which I totally understand. Um, but, of course, it's my generation's task, as opposed to yours, to because I'm probably 10 years old and you're 12 years older. I'm 47. Each generation has its own time and its own task. Our task, in part, was to deal with all the stuff that our parents repressed about the war and all the stuff that they had repressed um, about their own natures and their own family. You know, the stiff upper lip, everything was tamped down. Um, and I'm still finding out stuff about my family that I never knew. Such as? Um, my father was... I've only recently found out about my my paternal grandparents, both of whom died, and my great-great-grandfather, um, because my father was born in Ireland. Thank you, Dad. Which means that I've been applying for an Irish passport. <laughs> I've been applying for a separate one, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> which means, sod you, Brexiteers. And um, so I've had to go back into all that, and it's fascinating, yeah. I would imagine, sort of over the years, because, you know, they're, they're such... They tend to do quite well. Autobiographical books tend to do quite well. And one one, one very conspicuous thing about... about I mean, I think you described 1966 as a sort of secret... Or, no, was it, was it, did you describe it as a secret autobiography or sort of an autobiography by proxy? But you're, yes. not, you're not in it as such. No. I find, unless you're doing a... I, I, I have to say, I read, when I read histories, I want to read the history. I don't want to read the history plus the author's journey. The author's journey is part... A lot of the work you do on the book, as you well know, is uh, foundations. Foundations might get quite high, but they get lopped off when the, when the proper building is erected and you don't see them. That's all stuff that I, you don't want the reader to see. I'm sorry, I'm very, very, I'm very, very strong about this. I'm also not particularly excited by um, a lot of the kind of pop autobiographies. Um, I'm interested in pop music because I'm interested in the extraordinary. I'm interested in the present and the future. I'm interested in the present and the future in the past. I'm also, when I look at the past, trying to make it relevant to date, but also to work out what was at stake. People have this image of 67 as the year of flower power. It wasn't. That was part of it, but it wasn't all peace and love, to be sure. And the same with 66. And so if you put music in context of time and place, which is quite a hard job of research, um, and project yourself back into how people were thinking and feeling, 
then that begins to be proper history. It's not all about you. There's so much that I'm afraid I find incredibly narcissistic and incredibly tedious. Um, For instance, a very good example, when I'm doing a teenage book, history of youth culture book, I faced this very directly because I had to deal with the Hitler youth. Hmm. Now, you know, obviously the... Well, what do you expect to say? A bunch of horrible little Nazis. Well, they were a bunch of horrible little Nazis, but that's not good enough. (laughs) What did they think they were doing? What did they feel that made them act this way? What were the pressures? You know, so that's what you have to... So, in other words, you have to take it out of yourself. And I got very tired with the whole Hornby and sub-Nick Hornby kind of writing about music where it was all about personal response. There's no reason why you can't do proper analysis and proper research um, into this topic because it's a fascinating topic. And it's um, the people who made the records were, were taking what they did seriously. It's not all a bloody joke. It's not all about you. You know, people for some of these people and for some of the fans involved, it was life or death. Is there not middle ground though? Is there? I'll be research. <laughs> is you know, I, I absolutely agree. This is why you know the chart you were quoting earlier on is one from a music paper of fifty years ago. I brought along. Oh, I love these. So do I, and because they they tell the real story, and yes. you know, no one is going to tell you what what a what a completely constant presence Dave D, Dozy Beaky, McIntyre are in the top ten, and unless you actually go through these things, and they're in every bloody week, um, you know, it's you can only really get a sense of a thing if you kind of project yourself back to the present tense as it was then. Yes. And um, and that uh, c- completely comes through in your music, right? But I think that I feel like there can be a middle ground. I feel like you can sort of do both. And you must have had interest from people saying, "Okay, you've given this, this, and you've given this, this." But where do you sort of? Um, I, in the end, I'm not important. The work is important. I don't have that kind of ego. I just don't. To me, the whole point is the work, and the work is how I interpret the work, really, and how I interpret the work is I always was like that. When I started, I think it might go back to when I was writing for the music press, the one person I did not want to be when I started as a music writer for Sounds in April 77, I was going to be the anti-Nick Kent. Okay, because I didn't want to project myself into the story and pretend to be mates with all the groups and do all that stuff. I couldn't be asked. As far as I'm concerned, I had a job to do, and the job was to try and put over what the group was doing to try and get intelligent quotes out of them so that it actually made them look reasonably good and made for an interesting read. And also, if you're a music journalist, you're an interface, which I loved being, and I still love writing about music. You know, a lot of people who were music journalists get very snobby and say, I don't write about that anymore. It's just, you know, I want to be a political journalist or whatever. But I love writing about music and I have no problems with it at all. Um, and, um, you know, you are the interface, really, and it's a valuable job. And I always get irritated with musicians who go, oh, you're a journalist. And it's like, yeah, well, we're actually working on your behalf a lot of the time, thanks very much, and we're actually taking all the ums and ers and ahs out of the quotes and actually making you look good and trying to get over in in words what you do in music. Thank you very much. It's actually a good symbiosis if you're not being asked. Absolutely. About it. And the, the converse of this is, you know, we sort of often... Are, our friend Bob Stanley is an honourable exception, but often when music journalists try and make records, they're sort of terrible because they're so kind of they're so conversant with the theory, the do's and don'ts, the kind of the aesthetic sort of rules that they they just can't they can't switch off enough to 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 make a record that's really exciting. Uh, whereas there's just some you know that's something we will always be envious of musicians about. Um, I'm not envious because you have to real. I mean, I just realise there are people that can do what I can't do, and I always love music, and I actually like musicians, um, and I'm not envious of them at all. And I never wants to be a pop star, um, and I never had a group. You can like them and be envious of them at the same time. Oh, no, I'm not envious. I'm, I'm absolutely not. Um, I like being a writer. That's what I always wanted to do. Um, let's talk about a couple of. Um a few more of these tracks, on uh, uh, some wonderful choices, and one of them being Behemoth by The Shadows <laughs> of the Night, which is a, an astonishing record. And later I realised features Hawk Walinski, who went on to write Street Player 
for, which was covered by Chicago, and Ain't Nobody. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's a very good research, Peter. <laughs> Sorry, I don't... <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's... I mean, that's... It's, it's, it's fascinating, all that stuff. In one of the... The Pied Piper, which we might be featuring on the 65 comp, which I'm doing for Ace next, we're going back in time, mm. was writ- part written by Artie Kornfeld, um, and it was... It was recorded by a group called The Changing Times. It's a good jangler um, of Postbird's jangler. It was very heavily featured in a notorious uh, teenage murder case um, in Tucson, Arizona, with um, somebody called Schmidt, which Andy Warhol was obsessed by. And Artie Kornfeld, who was a co-writer, went on to be one of the promoters of Woodstock. Wow. So I love all these. Yeah, yeah. I love all these Me connections. Too. Me too. You know, it's just a bit of kind of idle sort of, you know, Googling, just, just to sort of throw yourself open to happenstance can yield so much because, of course, these people don't go away unless they drop dead very suddenly. But, um, uh, and also it's like the sort of, you know, it's like the... Uh, how many degrees of separation is it? Is it one degree? Six, six, six degrees yeah. of separation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I love to try it by the attack as well. Um, that felt to me... I just loved. The, I guess I liked the optimism of that track. Yeah, and also he's very loose. It's a very cynical, sneery London. It's sort of semi-punk in a way. And the American, the Standells did it, and it's much straight, much more straightforward. And I, right. I really like the attack because the lead singer was only sort of seventeen or eighteen. He's trying desperately to be like Mick Jagger, and it's just almost hilarious. Which I do, I do, I do like a bit of ludicrousness in pop music. Try it is also my the title of I'm sure it's a song you almost certainly know, um, the title of my favourite song from the Hollies album Butterfly that came out. That oh, okay, year, yeah, which is um, you know which is uh, so many great albums came out this and this is something I wanted to touch on because it's it kind of blows my mind how many sort of you know the artists we regard as canonical now all had albums out in 1967. I mean, it's just so much happened. You've got to, obviously the Beatles, but the Monkees put out headquarters, the Bee Gees first, and Are You Experienced, and uh, you know Wild Honey, and and um, the, the between Smiley Smile, which is great. Yes, yes. Uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, the Who sell out. Something else was '67, was it? I think. Yes, uh, Kings. Yes. Yeah, and uh, the uh, you know Younger Than Yesterday. I mean, that it genuinely does rather feel like there was something in the water. Well, I think also this is the money feeding through into the pop industry and people, and also in 66 you do get the album, quite a lot of albums that are more than just a couple of singles and filler. So you get Love, you get Blonde on Blonde, you get uh, um, Pet Sounds, obviously. Uh, And Pet Sounds is weird, actually. Sometimes I listen to it and I can't stand it. And then other times I listen to it and I think it's absolutely brilliant. You have to be in the mood for it. Yeah, I totally agree. Sometimes it just feels a little bit too kind of faux-innocent. And then other times you just think it's absolutely sublime. I mean, but um, Heroes and Villains, which isn't on this, is probably my favourite Beach Boys single. I just love it to bits because it just reminds me of having a transistor and lying on the South Downs in the sun in summer 67 and listening to that record. So, you know, there's a lot of memory in it and there is a lot of disguised autobiography, but I think autobiography is best, and I know I'm running against the trends here, when it is tamped down, if not disguised, then, you know, put in a put in a cage and just put to one side. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, it was very interesting. When I did the intro to 66... Mm. Uh, the intro is about 25 paragraphs long. And in the very last paragraph, I said, well, I was 12, 13 and 66. And that's what everybody focused on, because people want this autobiographical stuff in music writing. And I, genu- I feel very strongly that unless it is reined in, it, most of the time it makes for not very good and very interesting writing, because it's a substitute for research, for going back two primary sources, like these pop things, which are absolutely fantastic. I spent my two years or three years doing 66, bathed in rave and record mirror and disc, and I can tell you it's a very nice place to be. Um, (laughs) I don't do the same. In this record mirror, for instance, you've got Tony Hall 
um, Tony Hall's column, which is he was one of the best writers about pop music in 66 and 67, and he's forgotten. Everybody goes on about Rolling Stone, or everybody goes on about the NME, the great days why, of the NME. Why are these people forgotten? Because, you know, in terms of evoking the excitement of the period, that I agree, and Penny Valentine as well. Penny Valentine's brilliant, because people are lazy. And, you know, I've always resented the stranglehold that the NME has in any ideas about pop press, because I never worked for the NME. I worked for Sounds and I worked for Melody Maker. Well, also, going back to this period, Record, Mirror and Disc, if you want, because they were not... Streets ahead of this. They Mm. were not snobby, and also, colour is brilliant, obviously. Um, You know, those kind of gossipy tidbit sections where you just have these little kind of bullet-point soundbites about, you know, what car a a member of Manfred Mann had towed away from Piccadilly that last night or whatever. No, it's great. I mean, it's, it's pop. Uh, that's pop. It's yeah. pop. It's pop. It's, it's what we all want. It's pop. Um, and and that's what I grew up with, really. And and I regard all these records, really, as pop or potential pop. That's the whole idea. They're all singles, so most of them are upbeat. Because um, music was still really made for dancing then. I mean, all of these would have been... You know, the idea would be you would dance to them. Um, and... Um, and... It was still, I mean, to me, you know, the experience was hearing Buffalo Springfield along with Joe Tex and there being no... That's why I got really irritated later on when there's all this snobbery about soul or hmm. uh, snobbery about rock, for that matter, because I never regarded the, the two as really separate and I always loved Motown to bits from the word go. Um, so it's, it's... I always had... You know, quite. A, I've always liked a very, very wide range of music. That will always be to, uh, to. I feel like that will always be to the Beatles' credit that they were just so early on Motown. Yes. That they they completely got the kind of importance of this music. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think about this. The first Black American I must have been aware of must have been Little Eva, Locomotion, and that was '62. And then, because shortly after that, she made a record with Big D Irwin that was a huge hit in the UK, and that was Swinging on a Star. Mm. Don't know whether you know that one. No, oh, it's great. Um, Swinging on a Star, Big D Irwin and Little Eva. And then, of course, shortly after that, you had Where's Our Love Go? And then that was it. Supremes were a fairly constant fixture. Not totally, but a fairly constant fixture. Um, and certainly by 66, when I was listening to Pirate Radio, you heard a lot of uh, of Motown. I loved um, Uptight and yeah. records like that. I'm fascinated by another, th- fa- another really interesting thing about this precise period in history covered by the compilation is that it's, it's this, this kind of sense that over on one side you had the really important, meaningful rock stuff and then on the other side, you had the kind of light, fluffy stuff. I like another reason I like reading these magazines mm. is that you see, you know, after after closing time, all the kind of serious, respected, uh, meaningful musicians and all the light entertainment people were off at places like the Bag of Nails. Yes, just they all had that mutual respect for each other as entertainers. They're all part of entertainment. Yes. Well, I think, yes, and also a lot of that was... A lot of what you're talking about was um, erected subsequently, and you're talking about the canon, really, of rock journalism. And, of course, the canon of rock journalism, probably to someone of your age, must seem very irritating. Uh, I grew up with it, so I understand why it happened. Um, And what I feel about that is, of course, it it left out loads of things, but also it's not necessarily wrong either. Um... Um, and there was an awful lot of pomposity about um, about rock music, um, and I think that's understandable. It is a bit can be a bit irritating, but I mean, you know, nobody cares about that now. It's all gone. You know, nobody nobody cares about which aspect. But specific- the pomposity, people's pomposity about oh, rock yes, music, yes, it's all gone. Yes, yes, and and a better thing for it, you know. And it is interesting. I do think one has to be... I mean, I like hanging on to my teenage prejudices, but I do think one basically has to be fairly relaxed about these things. Um, And I only get into them when I want to get into a sort of uh, free and frank discussion about what's crap and what isn't, which is always fun. I mean, you know, also you read a lot of this stuff. You read Disc, and it's Mick Jagger slagging off uh, Scott Walker 
Mm. And Scott Walker slagging off Mick Jagger because he's <laughs> flung a cigarette into his drink. And I think, oh, yeah, that's great. That's what pop music is about as well. Everybody's slagging each other off. What I really love about this whole era <laughs> is that you can pick up pretty much any of these magazines and, you know, uh, Scott Walker will be in there moaning about something. Yeah, always. <laughs> I do love the story, and I don't know if it's true, that Andrew Logan said, and I do love the Andrew Lou Golden book, Stone 1 and Stone 2, um, the, his autobiography, and because um, they're fascinating on so many levels. And uh, he tells the story of going around with Mick one day and banging on Scott's door and saying, come on out, you old queen, stop being a misery. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not perhaps the worst, best way to deal with the topic, but it was certainly very funny. But it's also a lot... <laughs> As well as obviously Scott Walker complaining, you also got loads of letters complaining about Scott Walker complaining, which would seem to be really pissing a lot of people off just all o all over Britain. Well, their their reign didn't last very long, actually. No. When you look at it, at the top they had about three or four top fives, and then that was it. It was all seventeens and twenties. Um, I actually liked the Walker Brothers. Um, they were. I mean, I was still twelve, thirteen. I was still liking mainstream pop then. And I liked early Dave D. I did like Hold Tight. And Bendit was hilarious. Dave D did, did go a bit crap in 67. Um, Zabadak was not one of their best. On the other hand, <laughs> Zabadak has got this insane wannabe psychedelic flip called The Sun Goes Down. Um, which I don't know whether you know, but it's hilarious. No, no it sounds great. I mean, look, to be honest, I love the Legend of Xanadu. So, yeah, you know, I'm and um, you know, okay. I mean, I'm I'm completely uh, the, all that stuff cheers me up. Well, yes, and then there is a point to pop music with that. I think probably by this stage, I was getting into the. the I was very into West Coast when I was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and so I was probably veering into that. I was just beginning to separate myself. And I think what's interesting about identity in pop music is that um, by the age of, certainly the age of 16, I was interested in not being part of the peer group, which I had been, but in being separate from the peer group. So there was a wonderful occasion when we had a competition. I must have been 16, 17. And what's the heaviest record? Okay, so it must have been 1970. <laughs> What's the heaviest record? So we, yeah, so we sat, yeah, we stood around, got by the record player, Deep Purple in Rock, Black Sabbath, all that fucking crap, and then I put on Sister Ray, did, did and I win? cleared the room. Did, oh well. I cleared the room. Then I had to listen to the bloody thing for 15 minutes by myself. In the, <laughs> <laughs> and at that stage, it's only actually 10 or 20, 10 or 15 years later that I really started to enjoy it. I like the short songs, but there's nothing like punishing yourself. Um, but anyway, yeah, the Velvets cleared the room. You won, you know. I, way, did, I, I absolutely shut yeah. them down. Um, but I did like the Velvets very early on. So I was seeking something different. I was seeking something different from a very early age. And I think that is also having been exposed, really, and this is an accident of birth, um, I was nine when I first heard the Beatles and I was just there from then. I mean, and my first pop love was Del Shannon um, and when I was eight and nine and that was uh, 62 and then it was the Beatles and then that was it, you know. I was glued. Oh, from the get-go, from, from like, the Love get -go. Me Do? No, Love no, me no, do. no, because I was, at, I was sent away to a boarding school for a year and, uh, which I ran away from and the first one I heard was From Me To You. Okay, I have to ask you what, what, the, what, the, what, what, the, what the circumstances of you running away were. Oh, I couldn't stand it. It was a horrible place. But did you literally just did I you just flee? Out, did you get yeah. on the train? Yeah, I just walked out the front door. Where was the boarding? Where was it? Was it was in Seaford, um, and you're supposed to go up a former term and I, a former year, and I went up a former term. So I was a nine-year-old in a form in a in a form of eleven-year-old. So you can imagine, and I was bullied, and I just wasn't going to stand it. Um, it's one of my bullying is one of my trigger points. Yeah. If anybody tries to bully me, I just go mental, oh, which is why I don't like Brexit so, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, um, yeah. because yeah. it's all about bullying. And um, it was the winter of sixty-two, sixty-three, the worst winter in the second half of the twentieth century. That was the the, the 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 fog and the snow, wasn't it? It was the snow, and I thought I could walk home, but I realised that I couldn't, so I I turned myself in. To what did you just try? I walked back. Oh right, okay. But, and but, was... and, but I'd made my point. My parents took me away from this bloody place. Well, but 
good, good for you. It's direct. It's called direct action, Pete. Absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so from me to you was the first Beatles record, and then I was glued to Ready to Go from Summer '63, and then Top of the Pops when it started. So I saw the whole thing as a preteen, really. And in Ealing, and in where Ealing. you could actually just get on the central line, presumably, and just go straight to the heart of the action. Yes, I was too young to do that. Um, and also I was under quite strict parental control, which one wasn't as a 50s child. Um, but Ealing, of course, was a pop environment because there was the Ealing Club and also uh, the R&B Club, in fact, where the yeah. Stones had played. And it felt very mod. I remember Ealing feeling very mod. And... Um, there was a local group called the Eyes um, who had a huge poster on Ealing Broadway Station. I used to get the underground to school every day and uh, from Acton Town to Ealing Broadway and had a huge poster and they, they had a, a sort of pseudo-Who record. They were actually rotten. They're now called Freak Beat. Um, and it was sort of quite good in a slightly annoying way. In fact, they were very good in a slightly annoying way. And uh, they all had rugby shirts, and then in the middle of the rugby shirt was an eye. You know, and these are the sort of records that now go for sort of 400, 500 pounds. I'm sure Bob's got one. I'm not surprised. <laughs> He's got some of them. <clears throat> um, I've got... Um, I always thought that Acton Town was the most mod place of all because from a distance it looked like it said Action Town. Oh, OK. Well, we've got the action on here. Indeed. They a missed a trick there. They could have done a the they could have done a promo picture there with an eye. Phil Collins' favourite band of all time. Do you know that? Uh, no, but it doesn't bother me. <laughs> even this made me warm to Phil Collins. He even when they reformed in two thousand and two, I think he even he even joined them for that tour, which um, I thought was rather sweet. And um, final question, John, if you. If you could only listen to one song from 1967, again, if you're only allowed to listen to one song from this compilation in perpetuity, again, which one would you choose? Mm, that's a good question. Let me have a look. Um, it would be very... I think the one... Um, it's not necessarily my favourite from the time... But you'd want something that is elusive, that retains the interest because you don't quite know what it is. Um, and I would choose Tintin Abbey Vacuum Cleaner because it's a sort of perfect psychedelic record um, and it's very elusive. You don't know quite what it's about and mm. it's very dreamy. And I like dreamy records. OK, that's... That's a, I, you, you've really thought about this very practically, which I I, I just would have gone for my favourite, which uh, so I now feel like a bit of a simpleton. But um, no, but I've got loads of favourites. I mean, I do actually really like them all, um, and so that's what makes it hard. <laughs> and in a, that's what's great about doing comps because you get to be a fan, and if you like, a curator, but a fan, and rather than a critic. And I now am not a critic. I was a pop critic when I was younger. And that inevitably means that sometimes you write horrible things about people and you get involved in all the feuds that you get involved in the music press. And it's nice, really, just to be able to get away from all that and just say, we all got into this because we love pop music. Here's some tunes I really like. Hope you like them too. It's as basic as that. It's, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. I sort of... I, I don't have the heart to sort of slag things off as much as oh i love a good slag off well oh, I, God, know, yes. I know you oh, do i, love I know it. you do but i don't want to be doing it myself but well unless it's something you know like you know something brexit related maybe no but, but i i mean but i love it but i don't do it but like bat you know like a younger you know why i know i'm not sure it's a good look for someone in their late 40s to sort of really tear into a bunch of kids who sort of so oh, no, not now i mean i slagged stuff off when i was on the music that's press. what i mean i think you know you're naturally iconoclastic as a as a teenager and someone in their twenties, it's an iconoclastic iconoclastic time of life. So, I'm just not sure if there's a way to do it sort of later on in life. For what it's worth, I think I'd probably go for Sharon Tandy. Hold on, that's a pretty terrific record, actually. Um, I was listening to that the other day, and and in the car and moving, dancing around in the car, it's pretty good. Um, it, it's kind of the most. You know, the mo I think it's kind of the most depraved thing on there in a way. It's, it makes you want to sort of do things that are completely out of character. Well, that, of course, was always a function of rock music. And I always remember once uh, 
uh, I travelled up to Manchester to do an event with Tony Wilson and Paul Morley and Stuart Cosgrove. And it was a television show. We were all appearing on it. And I had one tape. I got it, drove up the M6 and I had one tape in the car. And I got involved in a huge accident, so I was late. And the tape I I wasn't involved in the aftermath of a huge accident. Mm. So I was really late and I was really, really pissed off. And the only tape I had in the car was a C90. One side was the, the Stooges and the other side was Raw Power. And that day I was ready to kill. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. I said unforgivable things to everybody. Um <laughs> <laughs> but that, <laughs> but that's because the Stooges are a classic example of a group that make you want to do bad things. Yeah, and that was always a function of rock music in particular was the id function. Okay, that we can all be terribly reasonable and terribly nice, but there's a little nasty little bit of us that just wants to drive at 120 miles an hour, take class A's, have rampant sex with whoever and whatever, and. That, that's always a place for rock music. <laughs> and maybe a little bit of that, that's what Sharon Tandy suggests, because it is, it, is, it is pretty raunchy. And that, dear listener, was where we left it. No one quite says the word raunchy like John Savage does. My thanks to John for keeping me in most excellent company for the last hour. Thanks to you for listening. This has been the Ace Records podcast. I'm Pete Perfides, and I hope you can join me next time. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.